Welcome to Research Uncensored, a podcast by Research FDI, your trusted investment attraction and business intelligence partner. Join me, Bruce Tackethman, and my co-host, Amber Hunter, as we bring you behind the scenes with economic development professionals around the world. We're going to find out the real stories behind the project wins and get to know some of the top players in the game today. We would like to thank the Next Move Group for sponsoring today's podcast. Next Move Group helps small to medium-sized companies, communities, and organizations create economic growth through executive searches that assist economic development organizations with hiring quality EDO professionals. They also provide site selection services to manufacturers, in addition to a suite of products designed to help organizations be successful. Welcome to another episode of Research Uncensored. Joined as always by my co-host, Amber Hunter. Hi, Bruce. How are you doing today? Doing well. It's a beautiful day. The leaves are changing color. It's almost time for Halloween here in Montreal. I know. I'm excited. It's my favorite holiday of the year, so looking forward to it. Do you get lots of trick-or-treaters at the Hunter household? Well, we just moved, and it's uh, more of a friend family area before we were living downtown, so I'm excited. I know. We're already stocking up on candy, getting ready for it. Well, perhaps you could dress up as a site selector because today we have Michelle Comerford from Big and Slacy Shapiro joining us today. Yeah, I'm really honored that Michelle is carving out some of her uh, time to chat with us. I know she's got a very busy schedule. Uh, really looking forward to hearing you know, insight on how the industry has been faring throughout the pandemic, uh, trends that she saw before and after, and uh, just getting some firsthand knowledge about her career that's led her down this path to being the prominent site selector that she is. So I think without further ado, let's dial in and get Michelle on the line. All right, let's welcome our next guest all the way from Ohio, Michelle Cumberford. Welcome to the program. How are you doing? Great, Bruce. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So great to have you on. I think uh, I think we were talking offline, and uh, I guess COVID has been, has been uh, I guess, tearing people apart, and it's keeping people apart, I should say. But you and I, I think we've met because of COVID. Yeah, it's been great. We've done a couple joint panels together, and, um, you know, I think that's one benefit of COVID, I've been able to participate in a few more panels, panel discussions this year than I normally would have. Um, taking the travel time um, out of the equation, it makes it a little easier to participate. Yeah, no doubt. We did the IDC session on reshoring, and I believe uh, our most recent one was the Ohio Economic Development Association panel as well in FDI. Yes, and as an Ohioan, thank you for participating in that one. Educate our uh, our Ohio economic developers on uh, some important trends. Yes, Research FDI loves Ohio. It's always happy. I wish we could be in Columbus or Cleveland, but uh, I guess virtual will have to do this year. So uh, you've had a long and uh, story career, really, in uh, site selection. So you began your career in site selection, working as a logistic analyst and junior real estate broker for the Staubach Company. Can you speak to this experience and what this role led to, to further your career as a location consultant? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll I'll even take it back a a, a year or two. My uh, I majored actually in logistics and marketing uh, at John Carroll University, and my very first real job was with a trucking company and kind of going that logistics path. And um, it was interesting. I learned a lot, but I knew pretty quickly I didn't necessarily want to pursue a, a career in in trucking. So I started to look, I'd always been kind of interested in commercial real estate. And I started to kind of look around and see what the options were. And I saw this opening for a logistics analyst. 
at uh, the Staubach company, which is now part of Jen Lang LaSalle. Um, but I interviewed and <laughs> truthfully, they said they hired me because I was one of the few people that knew what logistics actually was. And this was back in the early 2000s. So I think um, uh, it was not as uh, top of mind of, a, of an area as it is today. Um, but through that experience, it, it was great. It was where I was first exposed to really the idea of site selection. So um, at Staubach, obviously, the brokers were looking for those real estate deals, and they'd have clients that say, we'd love for you to represent us, but we don't know where we should be yet. Um, you know, Can you help us figure out um, based on different logistics or supplier locations? And so as an analyst, I got really thrown into that. And I really enjoyed that sort of problem-solving um, aspect. What I found out pretty quickly is I didn't really enjoy the brokerage side. And so um, I really threw myself into those kind of consulting roles. And through that work, was introduced to a number of outside consultants that we had worked with from time to time. And one of them made a referral um, for me to my next gig. So that was uh, that really did launch my career. Yeah, speaking of that next step, so uh, you spend uh, nine years working for the Austin company, culminating in you ultimately becoming the managing director. Uh, during your tenure there working with corporate co- clients, would you say the site selection studies and strategies you employed kind of evolved over time? Absolutely. Um, so the I was fortunate to uh, be hired by and then mentored by Don Sheldahl. Uh, who was well-known in the site selection industry during my time at Austin. And he had, when he hired me, he had been in the industry for 20 plus years. And um, I loved hearing the stories of how definitely things evolved. I mean, the way they were doing maps um, early in his career in the eighties, you know, they, it would take, you know, weeks to really put a report together. because They were literally printing out maps and putting stickers as, you know, the pinpoints for the sites and, uh, and very manual process. Um, when I started, obviously there were much more technology, but even some of those programs we were using things like MapPoint and, you know, really kind of, it was very still, uh, early on in a lot of, um, some of the internet applications and, um, computer programming stuff. So we, uh, did still, you know, it was a little more clunky and, you know, it took a little bit more time to kind of put things together. Um, so I would say over time, the tools that we, that we used and, um, the speed at which we could complete something, um, changed, but the methodology has always been the same. And and I think even, um, back in Don's early career, sort of that, um, methodology of how to approach site selection and really trying to look at a long list of alternatives and narrowing that down. Um, to this day, it's still how we really um, approach and, and execute those projects. Well, thank you, Michelle. And I'm wondering if we could maybe take a step back. You know, we have a lot of listeners that are new young professionals in economic development and, and some listeners that are not in economic development. Um, I know for the past seven years, you've been working for Biggins, Lacey and Shapiro, which is one of the most prominent site selector companies. Could you maybe tell our listeners what is the actual role of a site selector and how you work with corporate clients and what that really does to aid economic development? Absolutely. Well, our, our goal at, at uh, Big and Place Shapiro is to um, really become an extension of our clients' companies and 
helping them to manage and, and, and walk through and, and have confidence in the way in which they're determining where they should locate their operations, whether that be their headquarters, their back office, their manufacturing plant, their distribution fulfillment center. Um, we're guiding our clients in um, evaluating all the important factors, some of which they come in knowing they need to think about, and some of which we help educate them and on things they need to think about and um, helping them really get down to that final location and feel good about it. You know, consensus among their team and um, confidence that they're ready to move forward for this operation and, you know, into the future. Um, so as far as how economic developers play into it, um, as a site selector, um, and I can say many of my colleagues feel the same way, uh, we really rely on economic developers to help us do that job and execute that correctly. So we are, we're representing these clients looking at multiple locations, but we're really relying on those state, local, regional, utility, economic developers to help us do that. We're reaching out to those folks as we move through our process, requesting different types of information. Uh, as we narrow down, we're coming out and visiting uh, a short list of places, and we really rely on those folks to be our, our point of contact uh, and our, a critical resource in, in getting it done. And, you know, truthfully, at the end of the day, we, you know, are asking them to help us look good, right? We want our clients to be happy at the end, that, that they feel confident in the, in the location decision that they make. So. It's, a, it's an important role, um, an important relationship between site selectors and economic developers in accomplishing that goal. Absolutely. And it kind of leads me to my next question, which you sort of touched on when you said, you know, the way that technology has transformed has really evolved how, you know, quickly and readily you can put together these reports. Um, we know in, in our day and age that data is kind of the gold of our generation. What advice would you give to economic developers when it comes to keeping regional data ready, you know, on their desk for when they get RFIs or inquiries? <laughs> that's the, that's a million dollar question, right? Um, you know, we're, we've definitely entered this age, you know, years ago, it was hard, you know, where could we find this information or we want to know about this? How could we get there with data? And it was, it was much harder to really try to put those two things together. Now we're at this age where we have so much data that we're <laughs> trying to figure out how do we make sense of it, you know, to really answer the questions that we have. Um, you know, there's a number of tools. I was just talking with some colleagues today. I've gotten a number of kind of new um, you know, labor and analytics um, types of tools that are coming across my desk. Like, hey, we have this tool now. And, you know, I think this is really a result of all of this data that as a society we have and these companies have collected based on our social media and technology uses. And um, so it's a, it's a tough <laughs> nut to crack for, for economic developers. I think we're in this transitional time too and in insight selection where I mean, we're having internal meetings trying to figure out okay how can we make sure we're best you know allotting a, a for this information or we have clients that want to know about this or that you know are we pulling in all the right data points or what you know we're constantly thinking about that and and looking for new sources so I, I'm not really <laughs> answering your question because it's so tricky but I think the short answer is. Um, 
you know, the, the more information you can kind of have your somewhat, you know, kind of in your universe, the better, um, because you just never know when a site selector or company is going to kind of ask you something somewhat random. And so it's important to sort of just sort of keep your arms around and keep tabs on what you might have available. One of the biggest um, continues to be one of the biggest components is around labor. So things about labor skills and productivity and costs and wages, anything that you can have um, around that is going to help you perform better when you get those inquiries. Thank you. And, you know, my next question is about reshoring and nearshoring. And I know we've, I feel as though the webinars that we're all maybe reaching a fatigue level during this pandemic. I know that you were on a panel with Bruce. I was actually on a panel with Bruce talking about, uh, nearshoring, reshoring. I'm wondering is, uh, if you could give our listeners, you know, maybe the elevator, elevator pitch version of what you kind of foresee in, in the next coming months in, in this pandemic, post pandemic world, uh, in terms of potential nearshoring trends. Well, I'll say first, reshoring and nearshoring is a trend that we've been tracking well before COVID. I think COVID certainly um, and all the disruption of supply chains um, really shone a light on that. And, and we're seeing it now an accelerated pace. Uh, but some of the drivers for that were already happening prior to this year. Um, you know, we are extremely busy with um, companies that are, you know, sort of falling in that category of, of a reshoring or nearshoring. So in some cases, they're true reshoring, you know, used to make in the U.S., moved overseas, now they want to come back. But a lot of times they're kind of first to the U.S., whether it's an FDI company or a U.S. firm that never really made their product in the U.S. So we're working with that, with those firms, um, because there's a lot of benefits, not just because of COVID, not just because of the trade wars, but certainly those are helping in that argument. But also because of technology and automation, it makes more sense to make products closer to the markets where they'll be consumed. It's less risky. You can respond faster. You can get new products out there faster. So I foresee the trend continuing to uh, increase. And whether it's U.S. or Mexico or Canada, all of that will kind of depend on each individual company's um, operation. Um, but this this idea of, in general, companies making products closer to their customers is going to continue to increase for the foreseeable future. Given this trend and others, how would you say uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has really affected the uh, site selection industry? Well, um, <laughs> it's affected just like all the other industries out there. COVID has certainly impacted us. You know, our industry is obviously well-known for uh, traveling a lot. You know, we're consultants. We're working on behalf of our clients. We're evaluating multiple locations. We, in the past, you know, you need to get out there um, and, and see those places. Some of that hasn't changed in terms of the need to do it, but um, obviously we've all been forced to do more virtually and we've all, you know, found ways to do that. Again, thankfully the technology had, been improving over time that allowed us to do a lot of that. Um, it helped save our clients money. It helped save time in the overall timelines. And those have been condensed um, over the past few years as well. And so some of that, again, was already happening, but this sort of forced our hands um, further to do more um, virtually. So where we may have gone out and visited, say, six or eight places, now we're really trying to, let's get it down to the 
three or, or maybe four that we're going to visit. So we're really trying to minimize that. Um, and, you know, that's probably one of those things that will um, continue as we go forward, maybe never really go back to um, for the most part, if, if we can help it. So just being more efficient, being able to get things done faster and save our clients money in the meantime. Has it affected your ability uh, in terms of deal flow to be able to close deals or secure them on time? Yeah, so it, it's been tricky. I mean, we've definitely had a couple projects where um, they went on pause at, at COVID. You know, we're on track to maybe get something done in the summer, and they had to go on pause so that they could just deal internally with COVID at, at the moment. And now they're back. And and um, <laughs> the tough part is, so their manufacturer, um, their business never really slowed down. And in fact, it increased in some new um, sectors. And so they're already kind of, at capacity pre-COVID, we lost, you know, a bit of time uh, due to COVID and their business never really decreased. And now they're even more um, uh, looking to move forward quickly. So so in some cases, yes. And, and then as we look at some other projects where um, we're trying to, to continue to um, keep things moving uh, as best we can, but we are up against some of those challenges with travel. If a client isn't able to get to certain locations because of restrictions or if needing to quarantine, for example, if you visit a certain state or a certain community, you know, trying to budget in that time into travel as well. So it's definitely added um, some complexity to it. But overall, we're finding ways to uh, work through it and swap out team members to help keep things moving uh, and on time as best as possible. How would you compare, uh, I guess, deal flow and investment attraction, uh, companies uh, making decisions and implementing them, kind of, uh, if you look back to January of this year to now, what do you think the biggest differences would be? So um, it's interesting. So deal flow, I mean, we are as busy as we have ever been as a firm um, at this moment with um, with projects and, and they're all in sort of different sectors and different reasons for um, things to be accelerating. Um, so from that standpoint, you know, our, our business um, is, is very busy. I think, you know, getting to that um, execution of a project where a company commits to buying the piece of land and, you know, moving dirt and moving forward um, still kind of remains to be seen of what the timing will be on that. Um, sometimes we're an early indicator of what's going to happen um, in the next six to 12 months because a lot of our analysis is strategic. And then, you know, companies will take that and, and make decisions, plug it into their overall strategies and, and kind of decide with their boards whether or not to move forward. So some of that remains to be seen. But uh, I would say in general, we're busier now than we were in January. Um, and part of that has to do with COVID. And part of it is just you know, um, thriving economy here in the U.S. That's interesting. So tell, tell the listeners a little bit about the services of Biggins Lacey Shapiro. Yeah, so we are a um, full-service uh, boutique site selection uh, and incentives negotiation consulting firm. Um, we do everything from, you know, soup to nuts for uh, site selection. So things, you know, strategic, looking at, you know, we, we know we need to be somewhere in the U.S. We don't know where. 
down to more, we know we want to be in the Northeast or the Midwest or whatever, and um, really running a, a thorough uh, screening analysis based on their specific needs uh, down through actual site selection and due diligence and final uh, incentive negotiation and, and acquisition. We also, though, have some unique um, service offerings. Uh, one is we have an energy services practice run by my colleague, Tim Comerford. Um, he and I share a last name, but we actually are not related, ironically. Um, but Tim came from the utilities, and he is so well-versed um, and, and educated in all things um, electric power and gas and, and water and sewer that's been really important for some of our high um, energy users and in, in that so we can help with negotiating power purchase agreements or renewable energy standards or kind of a combination of that so um, we have that specialty we also I run our um, industry uh, industrial and supply chain practice so with my background in logistics and supply chain can do um, transportation network studies and so that's another add-on sometimes that's something our clients will do early in the process to help drive some of that strategic um, looking. And so um, we are, we have great um, services. We have some very experienced principals. Uh, we're headquartered in Princeton, New Jersey, actually. Uh, we have offices in Chicago. I'm actually, I'm obviously in Ohio and on the West Coast as well. And so we've got kind of the geographic spread, but we all work on um, projects uh, all over the country and build our teams around kind of the project needs itself. Thanks for the overview. Are you sure Tim is not a long lost cousin or something? <laughs> well, technically, okay, we'll, we'll get technical here. Um, my husband, because it's my married name, um, and it is Comerford, and there were probably six or seven generations ago, there were 10 Comerford brothers in Ireland that came over to the U.S. and settled everywhere. And um, so I think we are <laughs> related back to uh, Ireland, but um, not directly related. So I'll clarify that. All right, well, this connection at BLS is meant to be. So how can our listeners find you on social media? Are you on Twitter? Or are you on LinkedIn? I am, and I'm uh, happy to, to link. If I get um, uh, invitation to connect from economic developers, I'm always happy to accept those. I'm, I am finding myself going to LinkedIn more and more for finding uh, local contacts in places when I need that. So I, I encourage you to, to do that. Um, so Michelle Comerford on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter at uh, MM Comerford. And uh, I, I, I try to tweet some, um, you know, thought leadership kind of stuff on there, but I'm, I'm not always consistent, but please feel free to follow me uh, on either place. Michelle, thanks again uh, for coming on to Research and Center today. Uh, I know we were persistent, but we finally got you on the program. So thanks for coming on and wish you all the best and continued success uh, in 2020. Yeah, thank you so much, Michelle. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Bruce and Amber. It has been a pleasure. Great to speak with you and hope you guys hang in there. Thank you all for tuning in. You can find us on the web at www.researchfdi.com, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter at ResearchFDI. Tune in next week as we have another guest from the economic development world. 